14 or 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to hear the author and speaker Gary Thomas share at a public forum. That name may sound familiar to many of you, because I think at one time he was on staff at Hillcrest Chapel. Now he's a national or internationally known author and speaker. Some of his books include uh, The Sacred Pathways, The Beautiful Fight, or The Glorious Pursuit, among others. He writes about Christian transformation and discipleship and marriage and all kinds of things. Anyway, after the conference, Gary Thomas took questions from the audience, and as usually happens, people got all kinds of off-topic. One young man was there who was contemplating a career in writing, and he asked Gary Thomas about ghostwriting. Thomas used to be a ghostwriter uh, for people who wanted to tell their autobiographical story but didn't have the chops as writers. So maybe a famous Christian athlete who overcame great adversity had an inspirational story to tell. Gary would spend time interviewing that person and getting the gist of their story, and then he would write the autobiography under a pseudonym. He did this for Christian athletes, Christian musicians, and Christian actors, all kinds of Christian people. Anyway, I remember, or what I remember most from this interaction with this young man and Gary Thomas was this side comment. And he basically said that he is done ghostwriting that he would never ghostwrite for another Christian autobiography again. Why? Because every single one of the people he wrote about eventually had some sort of catastrophic moral failure, either after the book was written or it came out that it was sometime during the, the events of their story, something he had never known about. He said, from now on, I'm only going to write about dead people, because at least then I know most of their story. Now, to his credit, Gary Thomas is very aware that Christians have deep moral struggles just like everyone else. What he was rejecting was the idea of the Christian hero. That's the man or woman who's presented as the polished result of some mythical moral perfection. That person does not exist. You aren't that person, I am certainly not that person, and no one in the Bible, except for Jesus, is remotely portrayed as that person. In fact, the Bible is openly, shockingly even, transparent with the moral ambiguity and, in many cases, gross moral failure of many of its main characters. In fact, in biblical studies, one of the, the many factors that scholars use to identify the authenticity of a passage is called the argument of embarrassment. So in Greek and Roman culture in which the New Testament is set, the popular culture lifted up the strong and the successful and the powerful and the beautiful. And oftentimes, historians writing about great emperors or popular warriors would highlight the strengths of these heroes while conveniently leaving out the embarrassing parts of the story. So, it's argued that if you were going to invent a religion or a movement that would grow in the Greco-Roman world, you wouldn't do it with a savior who was crucified by the Romans. And you wouldn't do it with two of its key leaders in Peter and Paul who were traitors and persecuted and just so flawed. And you wouldn't include portions of the New Testament about the churches being so morally corrupt, like in Corinth or, or Galatia or these other places. So the more embarrassing the story to the first century Mediterranean reader, the more likely it is to be authentic, or so goes the logic. My point is that, for the most part, humans love to look up to our heroes. Heroes who somehow live above the messiness of life. 
And in the first century Greco-Roman mind, this was through the epic story or through the deification of emperors. And today we accomplish this by polishing up our own social media profiles or our resumes or by presenting our best foot forward on our Christmas cards. Our Zoom camera settings even have filters to help you smooth over the blemishes and blotches on your faces. And one of my three children, to remain nameless, even encouraged me to make sure mine was on the other day. Um, yeah, you can just check out your settings if you didn't know that was a thing. Christians tend to do this just like the rest of the world. So the recent downfall of Ravi Zacharias is just one example of, of people closing their eyes to reality so that their illusion of the Christian hero isn't tarnished. We have celebrity pastors who live more like movie stars than disciples of Jesus. And we set them up with all of these weight and expectations that no human except Jesus can bear. And they fall one by one, and we all act shocked as if a, a superstar Christian couldn't possibly have a deceitful and sinful heart just like we do. What's interesting is that in the Bible, every time Jesus started to gather too large of a crowd, he said crazy stuff like, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And then all of a sudden the crowd would dissipate because no one wants to listen to that stuff. Or he would get confrontational with the crowds just to make sure that people were clear that following God is a life of self-giving and transformation, not continuous victory and freedom from pain. When we observe the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, we could say in general that he sought out people in the midst of their mess. He was with people who were in the messes that they inherited, like, like those who were blind or had leprosy or other medical or social conditions. And he was with people who had made their own messes, like the woman at the well, or, or, or gatherings with prostitutes and, and notorious sinners. And when he was with people who liked to appear polished on the outside, people like aristocrats or the, the rich young ruler or the religious leaders, he usually pushed their buttons to expose the rot of the tomb underneath the veneer of the whitewash on the outside. And what I'm getting at is that Jesus was not only okay with the messiness of humanity, he intentionally became flesh himself to engage us in the stinky mess that we're in. And that should give us great relief and hope, because what that means is that Jesus is not just okay with our mess. He expects it. He knows that unless we are real with our own shame and our own brokenness and our own sin, he really can't do much for us. In our sermon series, The Lazarus Life, based on the book by the same name written by Stephen Smith, we've already talked about the importance of self-awareness. We've been encouraged to be honest with ourselves, honest with our brokenness, what Smith calls our tombs. And we've been encouraged to, to read the voice of Jesus in the scriptures as if he were calling us to follow, as if he were calling us beloved and calling us forth from our tombs. But the story of Lazarus isn't simply one of Jesus waving his hand and making it all better. In the story, Jesus is about to heal Lazarus from his death. He's calling him out of the tomb. But the people in Lazarus' community, they're not quite convinced yet. They know that because Lazarus has been dead for four days, he's going to be ripe. If they open that tomb to let Jesus begin the work of transformation, uh, 
it's going to stink. Now notice what the Lazarus story is not about. It's not about me and Jesus. It's not primarily even about Lazarus and Jesus. The healing of Lazarus has an effect on the whole community. Me and Jesus, that's sort of the American way. We are so into privacy and personalized service that there's this lie that seeps in that all we need as Christians is Jesus in the sense of the ultra private, don't let anyone else know what's going on sort of way. Like Jesus is your therapist or worse yet, like your, your private genie that, that you just bring out when you need stuff, but it's just between you and him. And Jesus is supposed to then help you, uh, or the, the false assumption says that Jesus is supposed to be able to help you overcome any obstacle with a life of personal and private devotion and prayer. Our cultural value of ultra-privacy has seeped into the culture of the Western church in such a way that we see much less emphasis on working through our issues together and much more emphasis on just the me and Jesus mentality. And I think this has detrimentally just negative effects in at least two different ways. First, I think that it can lead us to despair. And it leads us to despair because nobody was made to go through life, especially the hard things, just alone, even just alone with Jesus. This shouldn't really surprise us. I mean, we've been given in the church two sacraments, communion and baptism, right? Two ways of thin places where we are guaranteed to meet with the risen and reigning Jesus. And they are both communal and personal. So at communion, we literally commune with Jesus and the church. Private communion, except for people who are shut in or stuck on Zoom, um, th th they're not valid. Like, that is not a valid way to partake in communion, either in Scripture or in tradition. And that's why we don't just say at the end of the sermon on Zoom, all right, grab your bread and crackers and wine and go for it. Now we invoke the communal time of confession. We recite the words of institution that ground us in the rich history and the communion of saints. And we, we share a common prayer of consecration, inviting the one and same spirit of Jesus to be present with us all. And then there's baptism. We are literally baptized into the community of Jesus, the church. I always say that baptism is intensely personal, but it's never private. So if the very sacraments of the church are inherently communal, that ought to tell us something. We were never meant to live this life all alone. And that leads us to feeling like we're failing all the time. So that's, that's one of the negative effects of this me and Jesus mentality. The second uh, is that a, G, a Jesus and me mentality encourages the people of the church to assume that you don't want to be real. We assume that when we gather, we ought to be put together and, and polished and to talk about happy things all the time. And when we do talk about pain in the church, it's usually someone else's. Like some other cause, or some other struggle, or some other issue, starving children in another country, big issues of injustice or corruption that we can't really personalize, but we're mad about them or we pray about them. A just me and Jesus mentality 
discourages the community from expecting anyone to really have problems and messiness. So what do we do? What is the invitation here? Well, next week, I am going to spend more time on us as individuals. Next week, we'll talk more about what it takes to step out of the tomb and to face the stink of our own transformation. But in this moment, I want to focus on how we might be a better community for stinky people to step into. After all, if we're going to even think about being vulnerable with our own mess, we need to feel safe enough to take a risk in our own community. See, churches, I know this is a newsflash, they're full of people. And that means that churches are full of people who have stink on their tombs. Stink in their secrets and their shame and their past and their present. Churches are full of people and that means they have people who have been abused and find it hard to trust anyone. They have people who have done the abusing and find it hard to get that off of their chest. They have people who have had abortions and they have people who have carried the grief of accidental loss. They have people who have been unfaithful in marriages or in their finances or in their friendships. They have people who have uh, confusion about their sexuality or who regret their sexual history. They have violent people and fearful people. They have people who are racist and people who have suffered racial discrimination. Churches have people with addictions and deep wounds, and those addictions have both covered up the wounds and they've caused wounds to others. Churches are messy. Our church is messy. We all have tombs. And so what I want to close with are five truths and attitudes. They're going to be combined. So this is going to be five things. Five truths and attitudes that will help us create a church culture in which it is normal and natural to be honest with our stinky healing process. All right, so the first one is healing takes time and it requires patience. Healing takes time and will require patience. Before moving to Bellingham, I used to work with a guy who was a follower of Jesus, super intelligent, and a gifted servant in the church. But on the golf course, he was a completely different person. One day, we were playing on the back nine, and, uh, and he broke two different clubs out of anger, wrapped them around trees because of some bad shots. Now, he was up by multiple strokes against me because I'm a horrible golfer. There's no normal reason to be mad about that. And at the time, I was, a, of course, a much younger man, and I had much less patience. And I began to judge my friend on the inside. Because I thought to myself, how can this follower of Jesus, this worker in the church, have such a horrible attitude? How can I possibly respect him? And what I didn't know until some time later was that this well-put-together and talented man was deeply, deeply insecure. And he had some deep wounds from his childhood, events in his past that made him feel absolutely shameful most of his waking day. And as a way of compensating, he worked hard to be educated and knowledgeable and proficient and competent. And you would never guess that this man was someone who walked in shame every single day. But he was undergoing a season of therapy and healing, and his emotions were more raw and exposed than normal. And he was coming out of his tomb, but it was a stinky experience. 
And when people start down the path of healing and transformation, they typically get worse before they get better. They become more raw as their masks and guard is let down. And we as the community need to learn to be patient with the process. Healing, deep healing, takes time. The second truth and attitude I want to talk about is that healing is hard and requires compassion. Healing is hard and requires compassion. When I tore my ACL, my left knee, back in 2008, I was surrounded by compassionate care. My family and friends supported me through meals and, and childcare and financial help. Friends who had similar injuries in the past commiserated with me and, and encouraged me as I rehabilitated. Physical healing is hard, but it is accepted. It's obvious. It's on the outside. But inner healing is just that. It's inner. And unless you're open with others about your process, they may not know that you're going through something at all. They might just think that you're being aloof or distance or, or, or aggressive. And if we're going to create an atmosphere where people can be as real with their emotional healing as they are with their physical healing, we need to be compassionate. We need to assume that everyone is in need of healing and also to assume that everyone is having a hard time. Everyone is having a hard time. Compassion isn't giving every behavior a free pass, but it might include and probably will include asking respectful, honoring questions of people. If we don't want glib Sunday answers, we need to ask better, safer, more intimate questions of each other. Okay, the third, uh, the third truth and attitude is that healing is God's work, which calls for prayer and respect. So healing is God's work, which calls for prayer and respect. Healing is hard, and it's God's work in us. So another way of saying respect is bluntly saying, it is not your job to fix people. Let's, let's all say that together. It is not my job to fix people. It's not the job of the church to fix people. It's not the job of the pastor to fix people. We can help others by being patient and compassionate. But some of the heavy lifting and healing is prayer and respecting the fact that healing is above our pay grade. Respecting the process means accepting our powerlessness and leaning into faith in Jesus. Prayer is an expression of faith because it's calling on God to do what we cannot. So on the subject of prayer, Dallas Willard wrote, If your friend is a flat tire, you could pray about it but you should probably just help them change their tire. But if your friend is addicted to heroin, you can encourage or nag all you want, but you'd better pray for God to do what you and your friend cannot. The process of spiritual transformation and inner healing is a mysterious and powerful process that requires the work of God. Okay, the fourth one. Healing takes safe space requiring compassionate creativity. Healing takes safe space, requiring compassionate creativity. People aren't healed in a vacuum. 
So even if a person does require time away, like rehab or incarceration or hospitalization because of maybe a mental illness or something like that, they must still have a community to come home to. In the Lazarus story, people were uh, there on scene to roll away the stone and to unwrap the grave cloths and to attend to Lazarus. If we know that spiritual transformation takes time, and we know that it takes God, and we know that it takes a compassionate community, then we need to do all we can to create space for people. Last year, we hosted the Postureship Conference with the aim of learning how to better love our LGBTQ siblings. And we were challenged with the question, what are all the things that we can say yes to? So many churches with a traditional reading of Scripture are so unwelcoming that there's no place for a person to even encounter Jesus in the community of faith. So how do we hold space at the table for people who want Jesus and yet are on a very long journey? How do we hold space for the person uh, in our congregation who's addicted to pornography and seeking help but hasn't been able to kick the habit consistently? What can we say yes to to that person? How do we hold space for the person who has an abrasive personality that, that covers up this tender wound from the past? How do we prevent others from being harmed by that person while also making space at the table for growth and transformation? I don't have all the answers to these questions, partly because Jesus doesn't deal in hypotheticals. He deals with people where they're at. Paul ministered in different settings and different cultures, and his pastoral advice to the churches, to, you just read his letters, it's varied, except for the, the absolute essentials of Jesus at the center and holiness as the standard. As Americans, you might want to jump into a strategy. I want to draw the lines and the boundaries, and what can we do this and do that? But let me encourage you first to embrace the attitude of compassionate creativity, to embrace that in your heart before we start drawing up, drawing up boundary lines and saying who's in and who's out and what, what's allowable. Finally, healing takes a village and it requires intentional advocacy. As important as it is for a whole community to express an attitude of compassion for stinky transformation, it's also vital that personal connections are made. So in scripture, we see one of the biggest examples of personal transformation in the story of the Apostle Paul. From persecutor of the church to one of its greatest apostles, Paul's story is full of ups and downs. You know, much of the early church leadership was both skeptical of his change and impatient with his process. In fact, he was so fiery and kind of abrasive as a, as a young preacher that they kicked him out of Jerusalem. He was just making too much trouble to be worth. But Barnabas, who was a follower of Jesus, saw Paul not for the abrasive, young, raw diamond in the rough that he was, but for what he could be in Christ. And he reached out to Paul and using his good reputation with the church leadership as sort of a, a personal credit, he advocated for Paul and encouraged the church to receive him into the fold. Everyone goes through hard times. And everyone needs an advocate, someone who can handle knowing the inner, inner mess of another person while seeing the best in other people. As you consider the people in your own life, the people in our church, who might you seek out to encourage or to check in on 
or to advocate for? Who might you encourage to come clean with their inner tomb as you stand with them through the process? How might you pray for our church community and your place in it as both part of the healing community and as one in need of your own transformation? Thanks be to God that he is with us as our advocate and as our Savior and the one who does the transforming work within us.